A generous person will be enriched, and the one who gives water will get water. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. It was my first Sunday in Durham, North Carolina. I just moved to a different state, and the next day, the following Monday, I was going to start my education in seminary. And because I was about to start my education in seminary, I figured on Sunday I should probably be in church. So I got on my computer in my apartment, and I googled closest United Methodist Church. And the one that pulled up, I decided that's where I'm going. So I got in my car, and I drove down the road to the closest United Methodist Church. I parked in the parking lot. I made my way through the front doors. An usher who couldn't be bothered handed me a bulletin, and then I walked into the sanctuary. Immediately, I was sort of bombarded with these incredible stained glass windows. There was this exposed organ by the altar. It was beautiful. But the strangest thing of all was that I got there about five minutes till 11, and when I walked into the sanctuary, it was completely empty. There was no pastor. There was no choir. There wasn't even a Randy standing in the middle aisle waiting for the acolyte staff to be lit. Nobody. I mean, for a fleeting moment, I thought that the resurrection had happened and I just missed the boat. And all of a sudden, I felt someone tap on my shoulder and it was that usher who couldn't have been bothered. And he said, son, you must not be from around here. We're not having church in the sanctuary. We're having it downstairs in the social hall. I said, well, can you show me where it is? He said, you'll find it. Well, 10 minutes later, I was still looking for it, wandering in the basement of this giant church, wandering into empty Sunday school rooms, passing my bathroom. I could not, the boiler room, I could not. Find. Finally, I heard voices way down the end of this hallway. And I said, okay, that's probably where they are. Walked down the hallway, and I went into the social hall. And in the social hall, there were this like accordion of chairs that were set up in a semicircle. Uh, a little podium and a makeshift altar, and there were a group of people all sitting down, and they were getting ready to sing their first hymn. And the pastor saw me walk in, so he kind of motioned for me to come over, and I grabbed a hymnal. Take my voice and let me sing, always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. For the next 45 minutes, this collection of ragtag Christians in the basement of a church listened to a preacher go on and on and on about the virtues of why we needed to give the church more money about the call to give back to God, which was first given to us, about the imperative that we need to raise more money for the air conditioning upstairs in the sanctuary, or else we're going to stay down here in the basement and keep worshiping until Jesus comes back. (laughs) When the service was over, I tried to get out of there as fast as I possibly could. And right before I got out, the, the preacher, he sort of grabbed my arm and he turned me around. He introduced himself all the while he was apologizing. That I had to hear all of that on my first Sunday. He said, I don't want you to leave thinking that this is what it's like every week here. And I'm sure that I made some sort of positive affirmation trying to make him feel better about what he was saying. And I tried to leave. And then an old woman came up, put her arm in mine and said, honey, don't listen to the preacher. 
It should be like that every single week. It should be like that every single week. Because giving is what it means to be a disciple. I made a decision right then and there. I was going to that, go to that church every Sunday until I graduated from seminary. Today, we live in a world surrounded by a culture that is telling us that we need to live beyond our means. Our collective credit card, medical, and student loan debts are the highest they've ever been in the history of our country, and there is no slowdown in sight. And I think the reason that so many of us buy things we can't afford is that in the back of our heads, we hope and we think we're going to be able to take those things with us forever and ever and ever, which is impossible. In some way, shape, or form, we all go out hoping that the things we purchase will make our lives better, that they'll make me feel fulfilled. And even though it has never worked before, we don't stop. We just keep doing it over and over and over again. When John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, was conf uh, confronted by these strange habits that had been around since the beginning of time, he put it this way. If you seek happiness from riches, all you will ever do is try to drink out of an empty cup. All you do is seek happiness from your riches. It will be like you're drinking out of empty cups. We've been talking this whole month about Wesley's commands to gain all you can and save all you can and then give all you can. And for a lot of us, those first two sound really nice. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if we all gained a little more money than we have? Wouldn't it be nice if we were able to save a little more money for retirement than we have saved right now? But the last one, give all you can? We're not so sure how we feel about that. I mean, why bother gaining and saving if you have to give it away? Wesley says that if we gain all we can and we save all we can and we stop right there, then it would all be for nothing. We might as well throw our money into the fireplace. Because not to use it faithfully, not to use it prayerfully, not to use it to help other people is effectively to throw it away. I know that might sound difficult to our capitalist ears, but giving away all we can is actually what makes intelligible the calls to gain and to save all we can. I don't know if you know the story in the Bible. There's this moment with Jesus where there's a man who meets him in his life. And sometimes we like to tell the story by singing a song that goes like this. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior came that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down. Because we're going to your house today, bump, bump. It's a nice song, right? And for some reason, it has been in every vacation Bible school curricula I have ever seen in my life. For some reason, we think this is the best story to teach children. I want to make a case to you today. This is possibly the worst story that we could ever teach children. Because when we sing this little song about it, when we, when we have these little motions and dance or whatever, we completely miss the fact that Zacchaeus is one of the most awful people in the entire Bible. We just talk about, he's a wee little man that climbed up in a sycamore tree. We miss the fact that he was a tax collector. He was someone who went around to his local Israelites and he took money from them, kept some for himself, and then passed the rest up the line to Rome. He was like an old mafia neighborhood enforcer who would go to your business and threaten you and keep some money for himself before returning it to the mafia boss. He was horrible. One of the worst characters in the entirety of the Bible, let alone the New Testament. And Jesus picks this guy and says, hey, Zacchaeus, I'm coming over for lunch. 
And they're sitting at the table, and for some strange reason that could only be in the gospel, Zacchaeus looks at Jesus and says, Hey, I don't really know what to make of you, but I feel like the only thing I can do to react to what you've done for me is to give my money back. I'm going to give back all the money I took from people. In fact, I'm going to pay them back four times what I took. And then Jesus says, Hey, you know what that sounds like? That sounds like salvation. You got any champagne? It's time to party. This is not a good story for kids to hear, okay? It doesn't, Zacchaeus is horrible. I cannot understate that enough. He is a good for nothing man. And God, through Jesus, says, This is the guy I'm going to show salvation through. But that's the whole point. It is the entire point of the story. Salvation, the end all be all, is the way God transforms all of us the worst of us and the best of us. Salvation, it changes everything. It changes our hearts, it changes our orientation, it changes our minds. Changes how we use our money. Salvation, it sets us free from the bondage to our own self-interest that we're so stuck with all the time. You know, today, many of us, myself included, sometimes we want a version of Christianity that doesn't want anything from us. Like another notch in this endless list of commodified aspects of life, we show up with thoughts. We show up and we leave with thoughts about what we got out of it. The church has become Target and Walmart and Ikea. We go and then we leave thinking, huh? Did I get a good deal today or not? We go to church expecting to get something, and we never think about what God might get out of us. That's weird. So weird that over 500 years ago, almost 600 years ago, Martin Luther, the reformer who led to the Lutheran church, he said this, If anybody wants to be a Christian, there are three conversions you have to go through. You have to have a conversion of your heart. You have to have a conversion of your mind. And you have to have a conversion of your wallet. And we wish it were only the first two. It'd be nice if I could just give God my heart and my mind, but I don't really want God to be near my bank account. When Zacchaeus was met with this radical nature of God's grace, he had a conversion. He was transformed right then on the spot. He had a conversion of his heart. All of a sudden, he felt like he could be loved. Even the worst among us could be loved. He had a conversion of his mind. He realized that he could do something with what he had been given. He could give it back to the people he had taken it from. And that's the conversion of his wallet. He looked at what he had and he said, this is not my own. I'm going to give it away. Zacchaeus did not earn his salvation by these conversions. He did not earn it by going out and giving that money back. His generosity was simply a response to the generosity of God. Now, if you go to another church, you might not hear what I'm about to say. But here at Cokesbury and the United Methodist Church, this is the truth. God cares not at all how much money you put in the offering plate. God doesn't care how much money you give to your favorite charity. God doesn't care how much money you bring in every two weeks. God doesn't care how much money you've saved away for your retirement. God only cares about one thing. That you can see and know and taste and touch the wondrous gift that has already been given to you in Jesus. However we respond to that is a matter of faith. But what we do with our money, God doesn't care. The only thing God wants us to know is that we've been given the greatest gift the world has ever seen. And even if all this theology, if all the scripture isn't enough for you to want to be a more generous person, neuroscientists have proven again and again and again that our brains get a happiness boost. We like literally release endorphins more when we give something to someone than when we receive something. It is a good deal for us to give things away. It will make us happier. I don't know who doesn't want to be more happier in the world. 
You will be more happy biologically if you give things away than if you keep things. We give and we give and we give. And perhaps we give because it makes us feel better, but at least for Christians, we don't give because of that. We give because God first gave to us. If we get a little jolt of happiness along the way, that's awesome, but that's not the point. And during the earliest days of Methodism, John Wesley really desired this future for the people called Methodists. He wanted them to have an understanding of what it would mean to be disciples. And he really wanted them to see the relationship between their faith and their wallet, what they were doing with their money. And for him, and I think for us, the end goal of all this stuff about generosity, it's not about making the church more money, though it certainly wouldn't hurt. It's about becoming more like Jesus in every part of our life. Not all of us have money to give away, but we all have time. We all have talents. Those are things that God desires just as much. In terms of faithful giving, when it does come down to finances in the realm of the church, we talk about it in three ways. We usually start as tossers. We're people who toss money in the offering plate when it comes around. When we see a Salvation Army bucket at Christmas, we toss a couple dollars in. And, we're, and when we're tossers, we can do that, and we don't even have to think about what we're doing. We don't even really feel it. It's dispensable income. A dollar here, a couple cents here. We just do it because we can, and we don't really feel it. And then at some point, we move from tossing to trying. We try to think a little bit more practically about what it means to be a generous person. I used to just toss things, and I want to think practically. I want to give X amount of money away this year. You can't just go from you know, not giving to being a tither. Going from not giving anything to giving 10%, it will probably make you bankrupt. And as I said last week, if any of us here are an average American, we have $9,000 in credit card debt. So let me be very clear. If you have $9,000 in credit card debt, figure that out before you give any money to the church. The last thing I want is somebody to go, hey, you know what? My church needs more money, so I'm going to go $11,000 in debt. And then the final part are the tithers. The tithers are those among us who look at our own life, who look at our own finances and say, I'm going to give the first fruits, the first 10% back to God. We know that it comes out of Deuteronomy, returning the first fruits of a field back to the Lord. And for those of us who tithe, we've, many of us have done it for so long, we don't know how to do it any other way. It's just become part of what it means to live. We just give and we give and we know we're not expecting anything to come back out of it. We don't do it because it's a duty or an obligation. We do it because we are grateful for what God has given to us. Now, for me, personally, the journey toward tithing is not something that happened overnight. And to be very frank, it's still something I struggle with all the time. I constantly have thoughts about other things I could do with the money that I give to church. I mean, I look at my little three-year-old, and I think about all the presents I could buy for him with that money. I look at my incredible wife and I think about all the dates we could go on with that money. I look at myself in the mirror and I think about all those material things that I would just, they were just definitely going to make me happy if I buy them. I think about this stuff all the time. I do this in my mind because I too fall prey to these insipid temptations in the world around me about having more and more and more. And just like everybody else, I would love to be able to keep up with the Joneses. And like everybody else, I, I want the clothes I wear and the car I drive to say something about my own worth. And all of that stuff is like the wind. It just comes and goes. All that stuff, all of our material possessions, all the money in our bank account, it cannot hold a match to the fire that is God's grace in the world. And for me, it has been an act of faith to give back to God the first 10%. It is a thing of trust. 
It's regardless of how much we give, whether we're tossers or triers or tithers, putting something in the plate is a profound form of trust. It's saying with our wallets that we believe God can do something incredible with what we give and that we get to be part of it. Because in the end, we give all we can because God gives all God can. God gives to us more than we deserve and more than we realize. God gives us God's son every time we break bread and every time we share the cup. Because our individual cups, whether we respond with generous hearts or not, they will never really be empty, ever. Because God will never stop giving for us. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.